are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. You're turning in. I am not uh, David Guzik. My name is Chuck Musselwhite. I'm one of the board members of Enduring Word. Uh, Pastor David is flying back from Sweden today. Um, and so he asked me to, uh, to fill in and I'm excited to be with you guys and we're going to, um, get going with the lead, um, question in just a a few minutes. Um, but, uh, um, just let everybody kind of get on here. And I was trying to figure out how to get the stream going because it always seems to be changing. So I'm being told my picture looks a little pixelated. I don't, I don't know how to change that, Devin. I'm sorry. (laughs) Maybe maybe a pixelated version of me is better than a, a clear version of me. So, um, all right. Well, if uh, if you have your questions, you can start putting those questions in, and Devin, the, our moderator, will uh, shoot those to me, and then we'll. Um, I'm going to start with one question today, and that is the distinctives of uh, what a disciple is, um, and as we. Um, as we do that, I, I just want to welcome people, welcome people from the Enduring Word YouTube channel um, and also from TRW. We're so glad to have you guys. And also, if there's anybody, I made a daily devotion called Daily Walk Devotion. And if there's anybody who is from Daily Walk, it would be cool to hear a shout out. And of course, from my home church, the Village Chapel in Lompoc, California. Um, but anyways, we are... Um, We're going to get going. If you don't mind, I'm going to start with the word of prayer, and then we'll just dive in, okay? Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for these faithful people who are here to um, ask questions and hear the answers. And I, Lord, I pray that you fill me with wisdom. um, And just, uh, Lord, just have your hands upon us during this time, Father, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to talk about what are the distinctives of a disciple. Now, um, the word disciples used close to 260 times just in the New Testament. Now, that's that's from the ESV. It could change with different translations. Um, that's the, the version that I use. Um, and it's mentioned um, in the book of Matthew 72 times. That's incredible. Now, it's used in 72 times, but it's not. it doesn't have the same meaning every time it's used. And at the same time, it's not used for the same group of people. Um, of course, you know, the most famous verse found in Matthew is Matthew chapter 28, 19, which is right near the end where Jesus says, go um, into all the world and make disciples, um, teaching them in the ways of the Lord. And, you know, that's where we get our great commission. And, and so our, our, our mission as a church is to make disciples. But if we don't know what the distinctives of those disciples are or what a disciple is, then how do we know if we're making a disciple? So, um, let me kind of give you a little bit of background. Uh, I don't like to throw Greek words out too much um, because they um, oftentimes, you know, just more for the, um, the intellectual. But this word is actually important. The Greek word for uh, disciple is actually the word methetes, which is where we get our term math from. Now, before some of you guys start to twitch or some of you guys get eager because it seems when, you know, they think of math classes back to school, they kind of like have either one of those responses. Basically, the word methetes means learner or student. But that's often not the way that the word disciples being used in scripture. In fact, um, it often is being used as, as more of as an apprentice. 
Um, it's more of an of an action uh, verb than it is, or an action description than it actually is of of being a student. Now, some people try to take it that far that far with the disciples, like, well, we just need to be students of God's word, and that's a facet of it. But there's so much more because disciples back in Jesus's time were people who literally traveled around with a um, uh, with a, uh, a scribe or with a rabbi. And they were known as the disciples. John had his disciples. Jesus had his disciples. And these, and these guys often traveled around when they would speak from city to city. And they were people who were being trained up. And it was a great honor um, to be asked by a, a rabbi to become a disciple. And so you were someone who was supposed to, to carry on the teachings. And, and so you served a certain amount of time. Um, as an apprenticeship or as a disciple, and then you, with the hope that you would become your own rabbi and travel around and make an, a, real, uh, um, a living from that as well. And, and so as we see in scripture, uh, a disciple is someone who follows in the footsteps uh, of a master. Um, I saw a, a meaning that I want to share with you guys. This is from Baker's, Baker's Encyclopedia. It says, someone who follows another person or another way of life who submits himself to the, dis- the discipline or the teaching of that leader or that way. And so you can be a disciple of a person or you can be a disciple of a way of life. And, um, and the disciples that we see, the, obviously we think of the 12 disciples, they followed Jesus. They lived with Jesus. They traveled with Jesus. They were under him for three years. And, um, and so they were disciples. But that term for disciples is so much greater than just those 12. Okay. Um, oftentimes, the, as I was looking through, even through the book of Matthew today and kind of going through the 70 times it's being used, it's often used for the crowd. Um, it's used for a select group of people that are following Jesus around. It's obviously referring to more than just the 12 disciples. Sometimes they're referred to as the 70. Um, if you've ever seen the, um, the, 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 the TV series, The Chosen, um, which I really encourage you to do, you'll see a really good depiction of those people that are following around with, uh, with Jesus, his disciples. And then, of course, of course, it obviously refers to the 12. Um, and, you know, sometimes people try to get so formulaic about what a disciple is. Um, and, you know, they say they have to have, they have to do certain things, but, you know, going to church doesn't make you a disciple. A disciple is literally someone who follows. And and what I mean by follows is lives by and obeys the teachings of a master or, or, or a leader. And, and so, you know, as a, as a believer of Jesus Christ, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, there should be certain distinctives in our lives. There should be people who or there should be ways that are becoming evident. And that's and that tells us that being a disciple is more showing it than really saying it. And um, you know, Jesus said at, um, you know, several times, but he said at the at his judgment, at the end times, he said that people will say, Lord, Lord, I did all these things in your name. And he'll say, you know, depart from me, I never knew you, because they really weren't disciples, you know. And, and that's important. So we, we really need to look at this whole discipleship thing and say, okay, what, what are the distinctives, you know? And, um, you know, Matthew makes, an, makes a point um, uh, right before uh, Jesus starts teaching um, the Sermon on the Mount that 
the Sermon on the Mount was given to the disciples. It says that Jesus went to teach and his disciples gathered around them. So the Sermon on the Mount wasn't necessarily an evangelistic message. It was actually a time for him to teach. And if you look at those three chapters in Matthew, you know, our church just got done teaching through them. The standard set for disciples is incredibly high. And, um, and, and so, you know, but at the same time, while the standard is high, Jesus sets his grace for the fact is if we don't hit that standard, as long, as long as we are striving to be a disciple, not through works. Okay. Not through doing good deeds or something like that, but that we are trying to live that disciple's life, that, that there's that grace there as well. But if you look at the standard in the Sermon on the Mount, it, it is really strong. Okay. And, um, and so let me, let me scroll up my notes right here. And, uh, and, and so as we look at that, um, being a disciple is more than just going to church. It's a lifestyle that you choose. And, and I want to kind of give you some distinctives uh, of a disciple. Okay. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus really lays down the gauntlet. He says, he told his disciples, um, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And, and so that's one of the mantras of discipleship. There's that self-denial. There's the identifying with Jesus Christ by, by picking up the cross and by literally obeying what Jesus says. And so we, we have that, that aspect of, of being a disciple. At the same time, we need to be a witness. You know, God, Jesus tells us to go into the world. Well, what are we taking to make disciples? Well, it has to start with the gospel. And so one of the distinctives of a disciple is that we are going, we are being a witness. Um, and a third, a third um, aspect of being a disciple is, is love, okay? And, and, and not the emotional feeling type of love, but a true biblical agape, unconditional love. And those are things that should be evident. Now, how do we know that? Well, because multiple times, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that we will be known by our fruit. Matthew chapter 12, um, in, in, in uh, verse 22 and on it right there, he really hits the whole issue of that disciples will be known. Um, and, and he was really telling Pharisees, they'll be known by their fruit. And a good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. And so, so we will be known by the fruit. So we'll see the fruit of the spirit evident in our life. So things like love, joy, peace, patience, all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, um, we will be using the gifts that God has given us through the Holy Spirit. And so those are some of the distinctives of what the Holy Spirit does and in our lives and, and what makes a disciple. And so it's not so much like, you know, what a person says, but it's by how they live. And so that's why it's often said that Christians are a, are, are a walking, living book that people are reading us a, as we live, so that we can um, so they can see if if the gospel really is true. And so those are some of the distinctives. All right, okay, okay. Let's jump into the um, the, the the question. First question is from Sean Stock, and he says, what do you think it meant in 1 Samuel when the Lord gave Saul a distressing spirit? Sean, great question. Um, but let me start actually um, in, in Psalm chapter um, 11. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I just taught this to our church last night, um, but it's where Saul becomes a king. He's already been anointed. They've already had the ceremony to do the king, but the real 
coronation for Samuel was when um, he led the uh, Israelites in battle against Nahash and the Ammonites because they had um, surrounded and were besieging uh, Jabesh Gilead. And what's interesting is that when the messengers came to Saul, it says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, because it's capital S, the Spirit came upon him and, and Saul got this holy anger. So we see the Spirit being upon him, okay? Um, and, and, the God, and God's favor was upon him and God led him into battle and God gave him victory. And we see this wonderful God thing working through, um, through Saul. Okay, and so obviously he had great military savvy and was able to do that. But why did the distressing spirit came upon come upon Paul? Well, it started when Samuel told Saul to wait for Samuel to come um, seven days for Samuel to come and do the sacrifice. And on the seventh day, Saul got impatient and he did the sacrifice himself. And just as he's doing the sacrifice, who walks up? Samuel. And Samuel tells him, God's anointing has been taken off of you and is going to be put onto somebody else. And in from that point forward, with the, with the spirit off of Saul and his anointing off of him, and God now putting that upon David, there, there was a distressing spirit that came upon Saul. Because Saul was, was impetuous, um, but also Saul was very much into himself. And so as that anointing left, a distressing spirit came on because he knew that he was no longer under the favor of God, but also, too, that Saul was about Saul. Um, and we see that because he hurled spears at David multiple times. He even, um, you know, uh, um, berated his son uh, about David. And so that's kind of where the, um, the, uh, the, the distressing spirit comes from. So, so great, great question. So I hope that answers your question. All right, uh, Lucho um, asks a question in the book of Acts uh, chapter 13, Paul prays for a man to be blind. As believers, can we pray for something like that? Uh, <laughs> um, the short answer is no. <laughs> um, you have to understand um, and, and, and let me let me let me move let me change uh, you know turn to my Bible right there because I want I, I want um, to be very clear on that. And, uh, um, you know, I believe this is where um, Paul is dealing with the uh, sorcerer. And uh, um, this guy is, has great, you know, he wants the gifts of, of what Paul has and he's willing to pay for it. And, and Paul, uh, if I'm right, I, I you know, um, don't have time to look it up real quickly, but, um, but anyways, uh, so Paul prays for blindness there because he can't um, he can't find his way. I'm I'm sorry my my brain is um, is not working. Um, prays for I, therefore. Um, let me see here. I know he's talking that there. This is Saul thirteen in Pisidia. Okay, verse 45 says, When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out badly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you. Um, and this is, this is where they're going to go to the Gentiles. No, so that's not it. I'm trying to... Um, if you want to give me a specific... Um, 
uh, verse on that, but I believe it's the fact is, is that that what I was just talking about, the sorcerer wanted it and he, he actually rebuked him and he became blind for that. So, uh, but no, um, no, we don't, we don't pray for people to be blind. That was a specific spirit led instance for Paul, um, for the sorcerer. And, um, it was unique to that situation. Okay. So, all right. Christine Wilson says in Galatians chapter three, it says not by works, faith without works is dead. Um, what do we say to those who believe but refuse to change their sinful lives? Okay, um, so this is the whole faith and works kind of thing. And um, some people think that Paul and James would have disagreements on this because uh, Paul, James says, you say, you show, or James t- says in his epistle, you know, you tell me about your faith by what you say. I show you my faith by my works because faith without anything that's, you know, faith should produce something and it should produce good works. And so faith without good works is dead. But Paul says, you cannot... Um, increase your faith. You cannot um, get God's favor. You cannot get salvation by works. Faith has to be simply by our belief. Okay. So you can't work your way into heaven. You can't forgive your sins by doing a bunch of good works, which a lot of, you know, stuff like Catholic churches believe and, and you can't do that. Um, But so um, you ask, then you ask the next question is what do we say to those who believe, but refuse to change their sinful lives? Well, I, I said a little bit earlier that we will be known by our fruit. Okay. And salvation, you cannot prevent salvation from doing a change in your life. When the grace of God gets a a hold of you and and the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross does that work in you, it it tells us that, that we are literally made new creations. Okay. So we are no longer that old spirit. We have a new spirit within us and, and God is doing a work in Philippians 1, 6 says that he who began a good work in us um, will complete it till the end. So not only do we have the work of salvation and grace going on, but we also have the process of sanctification, which is separating us from our old life, separating us from the world and drawing us closer and making us in the image of Jesus Christ. And so if someone says that they believe, but they do not show the fruit of that belief changing, then there's a real, um, there might be a need to change or to actually question whether they truly are saved. Now, only God knows that, okay? And maybe they're going through great internal struggle over their over their sin and they don't want to give it up. And Or, or maybe they just, that, that Satan has that toehold and they can't get rid of it, but um, there should be that change in our life. Okay, um, one, once again, want to um, welcome all the TWR360 um, uh, viewers. We're so glad you're here. And uh, we actually have an email from a, a, a TWR360 um, viewer, and, and it's uh, Cindy. And, and Cindy asked, did Jesus perform his miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit or through his own divine power? Well, um, they're one and the same. Um, they're three in one. And, and so even though they're three separate entities, they're three separate people, um, and the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, Jesus was both fully God and he was fully man. So he was capable through the power that was in him of being God to heal people. And so you don't see a lot of reference in the scripture or any reference in the scripture that, that Jesus healed them through the spirit. It was through his touch. It was through his words because he didn't, he didn't need that. 
but he had the blessing and the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him to know that this spirit was in him. And, and so, but he did, he did those healings, but you know, that's a great question. I could see how easily um, people would get confused on that. All right. Another TWR 360 um, question. This is from Denise. She says, I'm 69 years old and have been reading and studying scripture for 52 years now, but I still can't refer to to scriptures from memory like you do. How can I learn to do that? How do you do that? I want you to be able to remember where I want to be able to remember where a verse is. If you could give me some helpful advice, I'd appreciate it. Okay. Well, Denise, I'm going to give you, (laughs) I've been teaching the Bible for 28 years. Okay. And, and so I have a certain, um, uh, ability to, to remember scriptures. Um, I write devotionals on scriptures. I do my devotions every day. So I, I'm immersed in scriptures. But one thing that you'll often hear is that I don't quote uh, the the scripture verses. And so I'll remember, and oftentimes it's, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a parapra- paraphrase of the verse, which I just drives a lot of legalists nuts. Um, but I, you know, I can remember my, my phone number from when I was a kid, uh, but I have a hard time remembering the scripture. David is great at this, and I have a couple other friends who are wonderful too, but I just kind of have, I have a memory of the scripture from just going over and over and over, but I, I'm always like, where is that? What, like, what part of, you know, like Acts chapter 13, when I'm just trying to reference this right now, it's like my brain is ready to implode. I know what it's about, but I can't like go directly there. And so there are people like that. There's some people, man, they know the address of the verse. They know it. They, they're able to kind of do that. My son is like that. I, I am not like that. Um, all I can say is that it just takes a, a constant repetitive, um, not only just by reading, but I know one thing that helps is by teaching, um, by speaking it, um, and, and just, you know, kind of having that thing. So, you know, I feel for you, Denise, I, I fall in the same way, but you have to realize that I'm not only reading, I'm writing and I'm teaching this. And so it just kind of, you know, that's, that's my major focus all the time. And, um, you know, where some people may do a devotion for a half an hour a day. Um, most days I'm immersed in the Bible, probably about four plus hours. And so that scripture is just kind of there. Um, and so, um, that's how I can do it, but trust me, you know, that's only a, 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 a phenomenon in the last, like, yeah, I would say like seven years. Okay. Just because, um, that's just not my, um, not my specialty, but, but it's, it's coming better. So, but great question. Um, if I can give you some helpful advice, um, do you journal, um, studies show that when you read, you hear, and you write, you retain 80%. Um, I, um, have been doing, uh, um, devotionals, um, for about five and a half years now at daily walk devotion. And, um, there's over 1200 devotions there. Um, and those are all from my journals where I do my morning here journals and I write them out. And uh, that's the best way that I have ever, I, I've, I really started to remember it. And, and so by me writing and actually writing about that scripture, I've, I've memorized a lot of verses that way. So if I, what I've encouraged you, Denise, is if you have a journal, just get like a moleskin. You know, if you have, if you have something like, you know, just a little simple journal with lines on it. Um, and it, it, the best thing to do is to get it to be the size of your, um, of your Bible. Now I do all my devotions 
um, on my phone. I, um, I used to use the Bible app, um, which uh, was great. But the problem is, is that um, I highlighted all of the versions that I wanted to read. And when I do my devotions, I don't like to see highlights because then I just focus on that highlight. But I used the, daily, the, the Bible app, but now I use the Logos app. And I do my devotions there. With I read the scripture, and then I use Evernote, and I do my journal in there. So a lot of times I'm copying and pasting, and and I'm writing things down. And and uh, when you write just a little bit about that scripture, um, man, it really helps you remember the scripture. So I'd really encourage you to do that. All right. Okay. Next question is from Mary. Mary, um, please tell us about the Lord's second coming. I need clarification on His rescue at Basra, and then. His rescue at Basra and then Jerusalem. Okay, I I can tell you about the Lord's second coming. I probably need more clarification on what you mean by Basra um, and and then Jerusalem. Okay, but all right, I am not an end times person. I've kind of got into prophecy, I guess, in the last year and a half. Um, but uh, but let me lay it out for you. The scripture, um, I think, is very clear when it comes to end times. And, and, and 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians really laid out very clearly. So does Matthew chapter 24 and, of course, the whole book of Revelations and Daniel. Now, that's a lot. Well, most of, I mean, I would say, uh, like, what is it, 20? My friend Lance says it's like 26.3% of the Bible is prophecy. Uh, and so, um, and a lot of it's end time prophecy. So the, the gist goes at this. The second coming will come um, in, in the blink of an eye. It, it will come like a thief in the night. We don't know when it's going to happen. But when Jesus returns, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, that he will come on a cloud, a cloud, a cloud um, and there will be a shout and a trumpet blast. And those who are in Christ, the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive will ascend up into the clouds in Jesus, and they will head back, um, they will head to heaven with Jesus. Okay, then there'll be a seven year period of tribulation Um, at the end of that tribulation. um, The the earth will the earth we know as today will pass away. Okay, and a new heaven and new earth will come. There will be a new Jerusalem um, and 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 God will reign. Now, there's a thousand year period of time um, between them. And that's, uh, you know, that's before um, the, the new earth, the new, new heaven and new earth come, where Jesus comes and he reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And all those who are in Christ, all those who are fathers will be leaders with him. And it'll be a time of incredible peace. Isaiah tells us that, 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 a, that a baby will be able to stick his hand in, in the hole of a snake and nothing will happen. Okay, so that tells you how peaceful it's going to be. Um, and that's what's going to happen with the second coming. All right. Now, I mean, I literally could fill up the rest of this hour and several hours kind of getting into the um, the 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 details. I haven't even you know talked about the Antichrist. You know, um, when the tribulation comes, the Antichrist is Antichrist is going to become evident and the world is going to follow him because they're going to be desperate for a leader. He's going to be very charismatic. And so um, so that's going to happen. He will he will be the ruler during the tribulation. Um, but then he, you know, before when the tribulation's over, him, um, he will be thrown into the the lake of fire um, for a thousand years, and then after that, he'll be judged, and so or he'll be thrown into the fiery pit. So, um, I hope that answers your question, uh, especially about the Jerusalem thing. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus will step foot on um, 
Jerusalem and he will come and he will reign. So if you have, if, if that answers your question or it probably, if the way I've explained it probably has <laughs> brought multiple more questions. So, all right. Okay. So the next question comes from Popple Backyard Farm. Um, the Chosen, is the actual so biblically accurate? No. Um, I'm concerned if I share with friends who don't know the word as well. Okay. So let me give you a parallel. If you ever get a chance to visit um, Rome or you get to visit Athens or you get to visit um, Turkey, especially like Istanbul, um, uh, and you get to visit Jerusalem, you will see tons of archaeological sites. Okay. And they'll have these great, um, these great sites, especially like in Ephesus. You know, one, one of the last places I've been to was Ephesus, and they had the great library right there. Well, that library that they kind of have somewhat erected is not the original library. Um, in fact, a lot of the rocks in there aren't, aren't the original rocks. They're, they're just rocks to kind of help it make it seem, you know, kind of give you a picture of what it was like because they're trying to give you a rendering of what life was like back then. Okay. Now I'm using that um, as an analogy of, of the chosen. The chosen is just a, um, it, it's a great uh, um, dramatic presentation of of the of the Bible, and they do a lot to fill in areas of the Bible that we don't know. They add a lot to the personality because it is a dramatic show. Um, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it is really well done. Uh, at first, I was kind of you know I was kind of skeptical, but then as I got into it, man, I, I was riveted. Now you can disagree with me. That's all. But I mean, I would I I would definitely recommend that you um, that you recommend it to your friends because you know the fact is is that they they do a wonderful job depicting Jesus um, and the day-to-day life and what was going on and I know season three is coming out in October um, but you know if you're looking for accuracy you know I I would look at other places but but it's I can guarantee you it's not going to be as as entertaining to those who aren't church history fanatics as the chosen is to just normal people and, and pretty much everybody I talk to um, in, enjoy it for what it is. But, but, you know, it's kind of like the passion of Christ with Mel Gibson, same thing. You know, I had some serious issues um, about that movie. I thought, you know, the whole Mary thing and was a little overplayed, but of course he's, he's Catholic, you know? And, um, and so you just have to, you know, you have to take it for what it is. It is. And, you know, if you know your Bible, and 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 you have a bit of, of, of grace in you, you can watch it and, and really, really enjoy it and, and recommend it to those who, who need to watch it. So, all right. Um, Robert asks, is it scriptural to use anointing oil? Okay, I am going to take you to James chapter five. All right. And I, I just want to read some scripture to you here and uh, and let you know what it says right here. Okay. Um, cause it's better for me to read just scripture. Um, uh, <laughs> um, all right. Um, the prayer of, um, okay. It says in verse uh, 13 of Matt of James chapter five, if anyone among you, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. Okay. 
in the name of the Lord. Now, up on my pulpit, um, which is right outside my office right here, um, I have a little flask of anointing oil. And from time to time, um, I I will put anointing oil on people. I always do a little cross kind of thing. I just, you know, because at least if it glistens on the sun, it looks kind of cool kind of thing. That's just the way I, I do it. It's no, there's no like right or wrong kind of thing. Um, but yes, anointing oil is is very biblical. And um, I, I, I think people, especially pastors, should um, should do it um, and, and should probably do it a lot more. But it's a great question. So I hope um, Scripture answered better than I could, John, or Robert, I'm sorry. Um, so, but thank you for asking. Joanne Butner, and I'm sorry if I butchered your last name, um, uh, but she asked this, when stones and jewels are used in God's word, such as, um, for the 12 tribes of Israel. Does this hold any power purpose in today's culture, such as crystal use? Okay, so on the ephod, now I have to take you back to the Old Testament. And the, um, the priest, Aaron, it started with Aaron and then, of course, went to his sons. They had priestly garments, okay? And they had to be completely consecrated to put these garments on. But it was a linen robe. And then over the top was this vest, and the vest had kind of a hole in it, and it kind of went on the front and the back, okay, and it tied around the sides. And on the front of the chest were 12 stones, and there's a little pocket in the middle uh, right behind it that had the umen and the thurman, which were kind of like, they were kind of like dice that they would roll to kind of determine God's will. But on the, on the chest were the 12 stones, and one stone represented each of the 12 tribes. It, it was just a symbol. Okay, and it was a way uh, of of it was a way of value showing value how valuable the tribes were, um, but it was also a way of taking something that was precious like stones. And when the priest went before the Lord, went before the tabernacle, it was a way of him taking the twelve tribes and representing the twelve tribes before the Lord. Okay, that was the purpose of the ephod. Okay, and with those 12 stones on it, when when especially Aaron went in and they were out in the wilderness and he went before the tabernacle, he was representing the tribes of Israel. Now, any times there's precious metal or stones, people always try to correlate it to other meanings. But that was the sole specific purpose of those stones. And so the use of crystals today is completely new age. Um, and, um, and, and not based on anything in scripture. And if they try to use the 12 stones, um, they're misappropriating that use. So I hope I, I answered your, your question. All right. Wow. Some really great questions here. So, um, okay. Zemeraldo. I'm, I'm hoping that's Zemeraldo. Okay. I hope that's, I pronounced that right. Um, but here's a question that Zimeraldo had. It says, because Jesus is part of the Trinity, he says, no one knows the hour of his return. Only God the Father knows. Since Jesus is God and part of the Trinity, how does he not know the hour? Well, Zimeraldo, you said the first part because Jesus said he doesn't know, which shows you that the Trinity, although that they are one, they are three separate people. And the fact is, is that only God knows the hour of the time that Jesus is going to return, which means that God's going to say it. He's going to look at Jesus and say, okay, go. Now, 
you could take it. The fact is that while Jesus was on earth, he didn't know. While he was man, God was keeping that. Now he's up in heaven. You can take that, but let's just take it for fully what it says right there. We Jesus doesn't know because he says he doesn't know, which means that that God is is keeping that from him. All right. Now there's nothing wrong with keeping it from him. As a father of four teenagers, there's plenty of what I keep from my teenagers because they just don't need to know. <laughs> you know, it's just a, a natural thing. Um, and I can tell you right now, there's a lot that they keep from me, not that Jesus is keeping it from God, but I'm just saying it's just a, and so for this specific reason, Jesus doesn't tell us why. He just says that he doesn't know. And that, and he tells us that, that, that he's going to come like a thief in the night. And so it's not going to be, it, it, it's not going to be a great buildup. It, it's just going to simply, it's going to happen, you know? And I like how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that in, in the blink of an eye, we will be transformed. And that's pretty awesome. So um, I hope I, I hope I answer your question, um, even though he is part of the Trinity. And, and theoretically, I guess you'd say if he's up in heaven, um, that he probably knows now, but I, I kind of like to take the gist of the fact is, is that he's just waiting for his father to tell him and his obedience to his father. He's just, you know, he's, he's going with it. Okay. All right. So great question, Jerome Raldo. All right. Andromeda Veranal. Should I be worried if I've been a Christian for two years and I haven't gained any souls? I don't know why it's easy for other Christians to win souls, but not for me. Okay, Andromeda, you just asked a question that probably 80% of all Christians have asked at some time in their life, okay? Uh, it just seems that there are certain people like Greg Laurie and other people who are just naturally gifted in sharing the gospel, and they have that boldness. And should you be concerned that you haven't led anybody to Christ? Well, my first question is, is, is not, you shouldn't so much be worried about the results, but in the faithfulness. Okay. And, and, and that's simply this is, are you sharing the gospel? Okay. If you're sharing the gospel, then you're being faithful. The results are up, uh, left up to the Lord. Paul says in, in, in first Corinthians, he's like some plant others water, you know, but God gives the growth, which means is that, you know, some people sow seeds and then other people harvest. You know, and, and, and so Andromeda, you might be sowing seeds and somebody later on, God uses them, you know, to, um, to, to bring the harvest. I know in my personal situation, like I get a chance to, to share the gospel on Sundays, um, uh, after, in, in, in the services. And I know people who bring unsaved friends and they've been witnessing to them for years and years and years. I meet them. I don't even meet them. I preach a message. The Holy Spirit's working. I share the gospel and they respond. And, and and sometimes I've seen some um, disappointment in the person's eyes because they work so hard on that and and they didn't get to lead them to Christ. And I said, you know, it's all part of the same thing. So Andromeda, if you're sharing the gospel, God bless you. Because um, I can tell you probably right now, 75% of all Christians don't share the gospel. Okay. So if you're sharing the gospel, God bless you because you are doing the right thing. Leave the results up to the Lord. But you know what? I always like to take people to Acts chapter 4. And in I think it's verse 31. I, don't hold me to that. I just told you. I'm not very good with the specific addresses of, of certain scriptures. But I do know that Paul that Peter's been released from prison. And he goes back and he, you know, he goes to the house and he goes in there and they're praying. 
and, and, and they're praying, and, you know, because there's all this persecution on the church. And it says the Holy Spirit falls, the, the earth shakes the house, okay? Now, I know a lot of people get, you know, caught up in the shaking of the house, but it's really what's after that, I think, that's probably most important. And it says that they prayed for the boldness to share the gospel. And so my request to you or my encouragement to you, Andromeda, would be simply this. Pray for boldness. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you that boldness to share the gospel. Ask for the wisdom to say, share, uh, to, to say the right words. Um, watch people like Greg Laurie um, and, and other people who are just so good at sharing the gospel and, and learn how to share the gospel in, um, in, in an effective way. And um, I believe that as you're praying for opportunities and as God is doing that work, in you and the Holy Spirit, he'll give you that opportunities and he'll give you the boldness and you'll see um, that faith, uh, that faithful step go um, be fruitful eventually, especially if it's your heart. God knows the desires of your heart. So that's a good thing. All right. Great question. Horatio, do Leviticus 15, 24 and 2018 contradict each other? Okay. Well, let's turn to those scriptures and, and give me a second here. But Leviticus, Leviticus 15. Okay. Okay. So Leviticus 15, 24 says this. Um, and if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be clean seven days and every bed on which he lies unclean. All right. Great Great question here. Okay, so let's <laughs> let's go over to twenty verse eighteen. Um, all right, eighteen says, if a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made um, naked her um, naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. Okay, now. We obviously need to look into context, and I don't have the time to, um, to to go into the deep context between these because obviously probably what I need to do is I need to look right around the verses of verse 18, okay? And so now I can tell you this. Verse, chapter 15 is are for those people who are married. Okay. And, and basically it says is that if you, you know, if you sleep with your wife while she is on her menstrual cycle, that you will be unclean. Um, and, and anything that you touch, any kind of bed that you touch will be unclean. And it says, um, I believe it says, how long will it be unclean? Um, and, and for seven days. Okay. So that's talking about, um, for, for a married couple. But in chapter 20, it's talking about sexual immorality. So it's talking literally about laying with somebody who's not your wife or, or having sex before marriage. And so they don't contradict each other because it's talking about two different groups, the married and the unmarried. And if it's happening during unmarried, then it says they should be put out. Okay. Now I can tell you from scripture that it says that a lot in, um, in the books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but that very rarely happened. Okay, but I think it was put there to say, hey, this is serious. Pay attention. Don't do this. So to answer your question, Horatio, chapter 15 is for those people who are married. Chapter 20 are for those who are in sexual immorality. So um, I hope that uh, um, answers your question. Andrea has a question. It says, if Ephesians 5 tells us to be 
uh, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why do you think that a lot of teach, teach, uh, a lot of churches teach very little in the fact that we need to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit? Okay. Well, Andrea, this or Andrea, um, <laughs> uh, however you pronounce your name, um, let me let me give it to you this way uh, with the Holy Spirit. Okay. There's two reasons. There's doctrine and there's fear. Okay. Why don't teaches? Uh, why don't people teach on the, the the Holy Spirit being filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a lot of churches like Baptist churches that are what we call cessationists. They believe that the power of the Holy Spirit um, stopped with the apostles. And it also they believe that once you're filled that at salvation, that's all you need. You never need anything else. They don't believe that the act of, um, of baptism, the Holy Spirit, which we see in Acts chapter 2, is, is any different than being filled. And they believe that that was just kind of a, a gradual progression. I've heard so many different things about this. But that's just not true. They can't, they can't support it to scripture. And really, a lot of their doctrine is, is based on fear because, you know, and, and that fear is, is rightly based on a lot of charismatics that, that and, and trust me, I grew up in a, in a Pentecostal background. I, I you know, I, I've seen people slain in the spirit. I've, I mean, since the time I was little, all, all the way up and through college. And, and so I've seen a lot of abuses on the spirit, but I've seen just as many abuses on the cessationist side too. So why don't churches teach on it? Well, first of all, um, there's really been a, 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 um, a campaign to, to, not, to not focus on. They focus on, on the gospel. They focus on discipleship. They focus on um, all these other different things. And, and the thing is, is that I think the, the Holy Spirit scares the pee out of a lot of people. Um, and they're just not sure about it because it's outside their comfort zone, which is, I believe, part of why the way God designed it. Because the fact is, is that if it was in our comfort zone, then we would just trust in ourselves just as much as we trust in the spirit. So things like speaking in the tongues, um, word of knowledge, healing, all those kind of things, the word of prophecy, um, those like just make people nervous. Because the fact is, is they don't know how they function, but that's part of the gifting and, and the trusting and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, when it comes to the constant filling of the Holy Spirit, I always go back to D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a great evangelist. And, you know, he had two ladies. The story goes, it says he had two ladies who always sat in the, uh, the front and they're like, you know, Pastor Moody, Pastor Moody, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And Pastor Moody, uh, D.L. Moody was like, I was filled with the Holy Spirit when I got saved. And they're like, no, you know, you and, and they would go to every one of his crusades and they would constantly, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, one day he was just kind of like, he was kind of vexed by this. And he kind of started searching the Lord. And it says that he was walking through the streets of New York and the Holy Spirit came on him like it had never come on him before. And, and he realized that that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so later on, when people asked him about being refilled with the Holy Spirit in a typical D.L. Moody way, he says, I need to be refilled with the Holy Spirit because I leak. Okay. Um, I also like to say we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit because the fact is that if we're being used by God, it's it, it, we just need that constant uh, that constant filling every day. And so, oftentimes, my prayer would be, Lord, fill me with Your Holy Spirit. And so, I hope that that answers your question. Now, why don't churches teach it? Um, it's I think it's because they they want to keep things very orderly. I, I, I see them quote First uh, Corinthians fourteen a lot. You know, like we or uh, is it. Yeah, 14. Like we need to keep things in order kind of thing. Well, the problem is, is I think a lore, the order um, actually um, goes against 
what, what, what God is looking sometimes because the fact is really what we're saying is order is scheduled. And we don't want anything out of the ordinary, and we just want to just, you know, focus on the thing. Now, do I believe that worship and teaching the Word is important? Yes, but I believe the work of the Holy Spirit is too, and we need to encounter the Spirit. And so, um, we, we need to be open to that. Um, and, and we can't use things like order um, to prevent that from happening. And I can tell you, I'll be confessed, I've been guilty of that, you know. But, but we truly need a work and a move of the Holy Spirit in churches, and we need pastors who are bold enough um, who uh, are, are looking for that. So great question, um, Andrea. Okay, Anita, did Jesus, being a Jew, take part in sacrificing at the temple? Great question. Great question. Now, if you go to Scripture and you go to the Last Supper and you start to read the verses before the Last Supper, you'll notice that he'll tell some disciples to go in, and this is right before the um, uh, the um, Palm Sunday. He goes in and because they're asking, where should we make preparations for the Passover? Okay, that's some of the disciples asking him, and so they go in, right? And, and he says, go and you'll find a, a donkey that's never been written, written, right? And they do in, and if they ask, they say the master has, has need of it. And so they take it, and Jesus comes in, and that's all part of the preparation. Well, they do the Last Supper, which is the Passover, which is a sacrificial lamb, which means some of his disciples went down to the temple and had the lamb sacrificed, and they celebrated in an upper room. So, yes, he was. He actually went up to the feast um, multiple times. And, um, and each time was always like a, a, a crazy adventure because of something going on. So yes, um, he did take care, take part in those. Um, did he actually take the animal to the sacrifice? We don't know specifically that, but we do know that his disciples did make press, uh, um, preparation for that. So, all right. Um, I have friends who are texting me outside of what Devin's saying, and they're asking if a USC fan can be saved, and that the answer is always no. Um, I'm just joking, but because uh, <laughs> I'm a huge UCLA fan, and if you're not from Southern California, it probably doesn't make any sense to you. But I get I have jokesters coming at me right now. So um, Bob asks a great great question: Are those pictures of your family on the wall to your right? Yes, they are. They are all family vacations that we came to places like. Um, uh, Grand Canyon, um, uh, the Oregon, up into Oregon, up into Montana. Um, uh, we even have Utah on there. So yes, those are, those are all my kids doing crazy things, um, at places like that. So thank you for asking Bob. Okay. David Morehouse says, I'm a painter that paints on big canvases. I have used the symbol of of the cross figures quite a lot in my work. Is it wrong to incorporate the symbol of the cross in my paintings? Okay, well, my the, like once again, it's the simple answer, David, and that is um, no. Um, uh, but the bigger question is, is I guess I need to ask you a question: Is in your paintings, David, do they glorify God? Um, do they um, are, are are they you know reminding people of what Jesus did and the atoning work upon the cross? Um, or are, you know, they kind of abstract kind of things where people don't understand them. And, and I'm not saying that you have to do a certain style and you have to make it, you know, kind of like, um, you know, really simple to understand. But, um, but the question is, is this is, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I'd have to see your paintings, but the question I want to ask you is, is like, are they glorifying to Jesus when you're doing um, those paintings? And if they are, keep doing it. 
we we need more artists like that. Okay, and um, I mean, we need people who are going to take the gospel into those realms that people um, that people don't know about. So, or, or they're they're kind of foreign to Jesus. And if you do it in a way that's glorifying to God, you could have incredible inroads. All right, all right. Okay, Devin, is that uh, is that all our questions for today? Um, uh, let's see here. I'm looking over here. I don't have any other questions. Um, but Hey, thank you guys, um, for being on the show. Thank you for coming in. I hope, um, I was able to, uh, um, answer those questions. I hope I didn't, uh, confuse you more. Um, but, uh, but, and I'm thankful for David letting me be on here. Um, Oh, wait, one more question from Peter. If I love the people at a church, but don't agree with the pastor's theology, should I stay there? <laughs> um, uh, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if this is my youth pastor asking this question. That's why I'm laughing. I, I don't want you guys to think anything like that, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, the, so that's why I'm laughing. I'm not, I'm not a Peter. I'm not, not saying that to you, but here's the thing. Um, is it the pastor's theology? Um, or is it the church's theology? And that's a big di- a difference right there, because I know, um, you have denominations that have very specific do- uh, theology, but like, you'll have a progressive pastor that'll go away from that theology. Okay. And, and I know a lot of people will feel stuck. Because they're like, wait a second, I love all the people, I love our church, but I just, I just can't handle the pastor. And that happens, uh, it happens a lot. But the question is, is first of all, is the pastor's theology truly wrong? And that's something that you need to be a Berean about. And if that's the case, then you need to go to him and you need to ask him. Um, you don't go talk to him, uh, others about him. Um, and if he doesn't listen to you, then you go to whatever governing board. Now, if you're a non-denominational church and there's not a board, um, and, and they kind of like have like this mosaic kind of rule where it's their words, the law and nothing else happens. Um, besides that, then, then you may have to, you may have to look for another church. Um, I'm sad to say if you, if the theology is just a really, um, a really big, um, issue. Okay. Um, but if you're a church where pastors, you know, you know, kind of go through every two to four years, um, you know, you might just want to to hold to wait it out. It, it it really it, it. This is a spirit led thing. You have to be led of the Lord to go to a church. You have to be led of the Lord to leave that church. And I am under the firm belief that God does not lead people to leave churches nearly as much as people say it. I think they use it as an excuse. God's leading me somewhere else. No, no, you just either got your feelings hurt or weren't catered to or, or, you know, but the fact is the church is full of human people and we're called to be gracious. And so Peter, that's where I would start with. Be gracious with your pastor, love on the people, go talk to him, be willing to have those hard conversations with him. Um, and if he's not open to it, then you need to go talk to um, the, the, whatever governing board you have, the board or, or whatever, and, and talk to them and say, I think these are wrong. And, and then if they're, if they're in agreement with the pastor, then it's not going to change. So you have to ask yourself the question, am I comfortable there? So, all right. Well, Hey, God bless you guys. 
Um, we made it a lot farther than we have in the last couple ones that I've covered in. So um, loved all the questions. Thank you for all for showing up and God bless you. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.